very thankful to have been in this church for about 27 years, uh, almost 28 years. Uh, and uh, I think during that time, uh, I have been to as many sermons of Carl's and had as much Bible teaching as I had in the entire three years of law school uh, learning about law. So I think I've got a PhD now in Bible, maybe, from, from just sitting here under great teaching for all these years and, uh, and just been grown up in this church, really. So, um, so again, tonight we're going to be in John uh, chapter 18. For those of you men who uh, are regulars on our Saturday mornings uh, with the Band of Brothers, uh, it may sound familiar. Uh, Carl asked me to teach tonight from the same text we've used for the last uh, three months or so on Saturday mornings. We've spent several months on Saturday mornings looking at the last night of Jesus' life, uh, earthly ministry, uh, before his crucifixion. And so we're going <clears> to, <throat> we, we began in John chapter 13 and worked our way through. But John chapter 18 is where the book of John changes character. All the way up until this point, John has shared historical events from Jesus' life really as settings for his various teachings. Um, you know, unlike Mark, Mark gives more of a historical fact-based gospel. Uh, John has been until now maybe less interested in the history and more interested in the teaching ministry of Jesus. And then chapter 18, it all of a sudden becomes more about what Jesus does than what he says. And why does John do that? Well, John has a unique kind of mission in, in the book of John. And in John, he's wanting to reveal the unique three-part uh, ministry of Jesus. Jesus as prophet, Jesus as priest, and Jesus as king. And so in the earliest parts of John, we see prophecy. He writes a lot about prophecy fulfilled and made. So we see John the Baptist, prophecy of Jesus' identity as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We see Jesus seeing Nathanael sitting underneath the tree, even when Jesus wasn't present there. He tells Nathanael, I saw you sitting under the tree. And then he prophesies to Nathanael that he would even see greater things than these. He said, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's the Jacob's ladder. And then John writes of Jesus clearing the temple courts and proclaiming, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days talking about his own body. You see him telling a woman at the well all about herself and her five husbands having never met her before. And even in John 5, after the healing at the pool of Bethesda, he calls down uh, the judgment of God, and he starts prophesying, uh, starting in verse 24 of John chapter 5, and it's up here on the screen. He says, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes who, him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Because verily, truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. And as he's given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. So do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So the prophetic ministry of Christ is very clear in the book of John. 
And then in all these things, and in many more places, we see that John demonstrates that Jesus fulfilled the role of prophet. And we're also going to see Jesus fulfill the role of king. Uh, The risen Jesus is going to do that. In fact, he's going to tell Pilate, when we look at it next week, he's going to tell Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And then he proves it by conquering death, rising from the dead, and even he proves it in his benevolent act of restoring Peter, right? Only a king could restore somebody who had committed a crime against the king. And so he, he's something he, only the power of the king has to do, and only the power of God to forgive that sin. So we're going to see him fulfill the role of king. But where we are tonight is that John is demonstrating Jesus' role as the priest. And the priest had three main functions, and that was to teach, to pray, and to offer sacrifice. And much of the book of John has been devoted to Jesus' teachings. Um, In fact, all of John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16 is one long teaching that occurs at the uh, night of the Passover. And in chapter 17 of John, we actually see Jesus take on the priestly role by offering prayer for the people. And we see a long prayer in John chapter 17, both for the disciples and for all of us believers. And now beginning in chapter 18, the role becomes not a speaking role, but the role of doing, delivering the sacrifice. Unlike the priest sacrificing the lambs at at Passover, Jesus' sacrifice is much more personal and permanent. And Jesus forever completes the role of priest uh, through the actions he's taking here. That specific office in the church is no more, right? We still have prophets, we still have teachers, but we no longer have selected individuals who serve the biblical role of priest. Instead, after Jesus' sacrifice, we have what we call the priesthood of the believer, where we believers take on the role of priest, right? We're to teach uh, each other, we are to pray for each other, and we are to be living sacrifices, offering ourselves a pure and holy and acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. So Jesus' sacrifice is going to be very different than the sacrifices that have been offered by the priests since the establishment of the priesthood in the time of Moses. And we're going to get a reminder of that right away when we pick up in verse 1. We're going to see right away how different that sacrifice is. So chapter 18, John 18 and verse 1. Jesus and his disciples, they've been in the upper room. Judas is left to do his dirty deed, and the disciples have finished the Last Supper, and Jesus has prayed for them. And now it's time to leave and fulfill his appointed hour. So verse 1, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with the disciples, and he crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. And the King, Ver- King James Version says he crossed the brook Kidron. And I like that. Uh, it, it, I think it shows the meaning a little better here in, in our minds because the Kidron Valley was really like a ravine, okay? And there was a brook in the bottom of it, the, Kidron bro- uh, the, the brook Kidron. And the brook led away from the Temple Mount. Now, Josephus, the historian, records that at the Passover, they, about, at this time, they would sacrifice about 240,000 lambs. Think about that. 240,000 lambs. And that's a lot of blood, right? And that blood would 
flow from the Temple Mount down into the brook of Kidron. And it would run through there, and the brook was known to run red throughout the entire Passover. And so here we are, the night of the Feast of the Passover, that brook would still be red with the blood of the temple sacrifice. And so here, Jesus and his disciples, on the night that he was to be the Passover lamb, on the night that he said, this cup is my blood which is poured out for many, <clears throat> on this night, he crosses the brook filled with the blood from the temple sacrifice. And that sacrifice was temporary and ineffective. But he crosses that brook and he heads to the garden where he would be betrayed to a time where his blood would literally flow and <clears throat> from his side as he sacrificed himself, a permanent sacrifice that is effective to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the Kidron Valley had another uh, important historical distinction significance as well. When King David was betrayed by Absalom and betrayed by his closest advisor, Ahithophel, he had fled Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley, across the Book of Kidron, across the Mount of Olives with a very small group of followers. He'd been rejected by his own people. And on this night, Jesus, rejected by his own people, crosses the Kidron Valley with his small group of remaining disciples, rejected by his own brothers. We find that uh, James and Jude later on come to belief. Betrayed by his close friend Judas, one of his very closest advisors, the treasurer of his group. But David returned to Jerusalem as king, and Christ will return to the new Jerusalem as king coming on a cloud. And Jesus goes to a garden. Now, Jesus knew he was going to be arrested. This is going to not, not a surprise to Jesus, right? He already told Judas, go out and do what you must do. He knew what was coming. No surprise here. He knew it was going to be this night. He knew Judas would come for, for him, and so he got to choose the place where that was going to take place, and he chose a garden. It was a garden in which Adam fell, in which the relationship with God was broken, and in which sin entered into the world. And it's a garden that Jesus chose to be the battleground, to be the place where the defeat of sin was to begin and where the relationship between God and man was restored. Now, this garden on the Mount of Olives was on the outskirts of town, and lots of wealthy people owned gardens around here. And it's possible, in fact, probable, that um, <clears throat> a wealthier supporter of Jesus had given him uh, the keys to a walled garden so that he and his disciples could have a quiet place to retreat, maybe even sleep. They probably set camp up in this garden, and <clears throat> where they could get away from the crowds. And it was an intimate place, right, just theirs. And they went there often. And that's how the betrayer, Judas, knew where to go. Well, as Pastor Carl likes to say, here the music now shifts from the light sounds of the shire to the ominous music of the orcs, right? So here they come. So verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, he knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. So now Judas. Remember from John, uh, from John chapter 13 that Judas had gone into the night 
and that Satan had filled him. The seeds of Judas' betrayal, though, had begun probably the moment that he put his hand into the till and he started stealing from the disciples' money back. Judas was a thief. It's funny how such things start. You know, uh, over the years as a lawyer, I have met and dealt with many embezzlers. I represent physicians, and unfortunately, 100% of physicians get embezzled against. Uh, It's just something that happens, and so I've met plenty of embezzlers in in my day. And it's funny how that starts. The thing is, none of them start out thinking they're going to be thieves. None of them. Most of the time, they just need to get by for a few days uh, until their next paycheck. And so they secretly borrow some money from the company until they get paid. And the first time it goes well, and they put the money back, and nobody ever finds out. But golly, that was pretty easy. So the next time comes. The next time, the need arises again, and it's easier to borrow the money, only this time they don't get around to giving it back. And again, nobody notices. And eventually, they're creating false payable accounts and diverting funds to themselves or their family um, as the, in fake vendor accounts, and they're doing all kinds of things, and they've, in the end, they've stolen thousands or even had hundreds of thousands of dollars stolen from an employer that they actually really liked and had been really good to them. In fact, if, if when they first had the need, they'd gone to their boss and said, uh, you know, hey, I'm, I, I really could use an advance, the employer probably would have given it to them. In fact, I've heard that from employers. I wish they just asked me. I would have, would have helped them out. <clears throat> but now they're in over their heads and they're hurting people they otherwise would have cared about. Greed and ambition consume them, and they even begin to believe that they deserve everything they have stolen. They deserve it. Should have paid me more. They deserve, I deserve this. So I bet the first time Jesus, uh, Judas went to dip into the money bag, if he'd asked Jesus for money, Jesus might have had him go pull a fish out of the water and take a coin from its mouth, right? Or maybe he would have turned a barrel of water into wine and told Judas to go sell it and just keep the money. Or, or he would have just said, hey, well, Judas, if you really need it, just borrow it and, and just let me know how much you borrowed. And, or, you know, here, just have the money. But Judas compromised, and he took without asking. Maybe he intended to borrow the money. Maybe he was always a thief. But over time, his greed and his ambition grew. Now, not only was he doing well financially due to his theft... But when, in his mind, when Jesus took over from the Romans and made him the treasurer of the whole kingdom, well, then he would have money and power. It'd be awesome. He'd finally have what he deserved. He'd be rich and powerful, just like he deserved to be. Well, the last straw for Judas came when this woman came and brought one of the largest gifts he'd ever seen to the ministry. She brought a jar of fine perfume that was worth more than the average person made in a year. Just skimming a bit. You know, say make 10, 20%, I could skim off the top. That'd be a really good amount for Judas. But then she broke it and she poured it over Jesus' feet. What a waste! 
What a waste. And when Judas rightfully rebuked her for wasting his money, Jesus rebuked Judas and made a comment that she was preparing Jesus for his burial. He even stated that Judas and the disciples would only have Jesus for a little while longer. What? Hold on. Jesus' martyrdom is not a part of Judas' plan. That is not how this is supposed to go. Kingdom, power, and riches are a part of my plan, not martyrdom. So the evil that Judas had given himself over to, the darkness, hated the light. It hated the good that was Jesus. Ambition clashed with humility, greed with generosity, power with grace, and Judas was incensed. And so he moved against Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and the promise of glory. He'd be the guy that brought Jesus down. He'd be the guy. So the betrayer went into the Passover supper with Jesus. He left, and he went to get the assembled group to come and get Jesus. So we're going to look back at verse 2 again. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now, the descriptions of this detachment of soldiers, armed Roman soldiers, numbers, that means a detachment would number at least 200, more likely 500 to 1,000. So it's not some small crew that Judas is heading out into the garden in the middle of the night with, right? Why this many men to arrest Jesus? This is like an FBI raid on steroids, right? I mean, this is crazy. And so... Judas must have told them that he needed a bunch of men. And why would he do that? I think it perhaps, perhaps, we don't know for sure, but perhaps it's part of Judas' ambition, right? Perhaps here is part of his plan. He's going to lead a successful raid at the head of a large column of soldiers with the head honchos of the priesthood, the religious, with the religious establishment in tow. I mean, this could be a big, glorious win for Judas, and set him up for a new career. I think he probably had visions of grandeur. Now, that said, we don't really know why the authorities agreed to send this big and armed group to arrest Jesus. I think the great humor in the story is that if Jesus had come by himself and said, hey, Jesus, it's time to go, Jesus would have gone. You know, they didn't need these guys at all. Uh, It didn't make any difference. Why? Because Jesus' time had come. And as a result, <clears throat> I think he, he would have gone even if it had just been Judas. But the composition of the group is important. Everybody is represented. Nobody's left out. It's as if they had a committee on a college campus and made sure that all the various diverse groups on the campus were represented to go to this event. Right? You've got priests representing the religious establishment. You've got Pharisees of both parties representing the religious government. You've got servants of priests representing the common Jewish person. You've got the Roman contingent, officers and men, and thereby representing all classes of Gentile society. And then you've even got Judas, one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his insiders. Everybody is out to get Jesus, or at least it looks that way. It also means that nobody, no class of people, 
No class of people represented here is without blame in the wrongful arrest of Jesus. We were all in it together, all of us. Now, Jesus doesn't run or hide. He goes willingly to them, and he asks a very pointed, very important question. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, so he, he knows he's going to the cross, knowing all that's going to happen to him, he went out to them and said, ask them, who is it you want? Who is it you want? He knew arrest, beating, cross. But most of all, taking on all the sins of the world, he knew this was coming. And he went willingly because the cup was not going to pass from him. And he asked, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Now, Jesus of Nazareth, we hear that term all the time, right? But to them, Jesus of Nazareth was a pejorative term. It was a term that they made up to describe Jesus to deny that he was the Messiah or that he was anything special at all. The proper term would have been Jesus of Bethlehem, right? But they didn't care to know that. They didn't care to know that. They knew the Messiah didn't come from Nazareth. In fact, they laughed. They'd say nothing good comes from Nazareth, right? So Jesus of Nazareth was a put-down. It was like a Trump nickname, you know, like Little Marco or Low Energy Jeb. You know, the whole idea of it was designed to be both, dis- both insulting and diminishing at the same time. Supposed to insult him and cut him down so that nobody, nobody thought he was anybody. Well, there's a surprise for them that Jesus of Nazareth isn't here or at least the Jesus they think they're looking for. Instead, Jesus answers them with the truth. Again, in the verse 5, he says, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. Unfortunately, the translators along the way have added he to the Jesus sentence there. The original Greek, he simply answers, ego ami, or I am the very name of God. He's not saying, I am Jesus of Nazareth. He is proclaiming that he is God. He's claiming to be God. And his words are proved true by their power. Verse 6, when Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. They were literally blown away. The words came out, and at the name of God, a thousand men were blown over. Psalm 1, not so with the wicked. They are like chaff. The wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Malachi 3, 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? We see it right here, don't we? Blown away just by his name. And in the end, we know that out of the mouth of Jesus comes a sword And with that sword, the armies of Satan will be destroyed. This in the garden, this is just a preview. A thousand men, just a preview of what's yet to come. This is not the Jesus of Nazareth they were seeking. 
but this is the God they have encountered. You know, men and women of God, we must always make sure that the Jesus we seek isn't the one that we create or define in our humanness, our own Jesus of Nazareth. We must always seek him for who he is, almighty God, revealed in the scriptures we study to know him, the almighty God approachable in prayer, almighty God who we should fear and love at the same time. So who are you seeking this evening? The Jesus of your making or the real Jesus, the great I am? Who do you seek? Well, amazingly, after this incredible display of power, knocked down on the ground, the gathered horde gets up. And I can just imagine them, you know, getting up, shaking their heads. Whoa, what? What was that? That was weird. Um, And so instead of reconsidering their intended action, Wow, hey, would you, what, what was that, man? <laughs> I'm out of here, right? That's what you would expect. But instead of re, uh, reconsidering their intended action, they go right back to their mission, seeking Jesus of Nazareth. You know, can we experience God's power and go right back to our lives, right back to our business, and miss the importance of who he is and what he's done? Can we encounter the real Christ and go back to looking for our Jesus of Nazareth, for the healing magician Jesus, or the prosperity gospel Jesus, rather than the real Jesus? Can't we be like that crowd? Each encounter with the I am should change us. It should make us evaluate our direction. It should be life-altering. It should never be something that we just shake off and then get right back to what we were doing. So Jesus knows what's coming. So again, he asked them if any of them have changed their minds. Can you guys change your mind? Do you now understand? He says, verse 7, again, he asks them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. They have just seen God's power displayed yet they still get it wrong. They still seek what they believe to be a false prophet rather than the real God right in front of them. So Jesus answered them. He said, I told you that I am. So again, Jesus refuses to play their game and be defined by them. You won't find your Jesus of Nazareth, but you will find your God. Verse 8, Jesus answered them, I told you that I am. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. We've kind of forgotten about the disciples that are out there with him, right? The remaining 11. (laughs) If, If you're looking for me, let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me said, I am not Jesus of Nazareth, I am God. And if you're looking for me, you'll let my disciples go. You know, I think about this, I think, wait, why would these 500 to 1,000 soldiers not round up everybody that was with Jesus? 
I mean, why would they let anyone go? Especially after what Peter's going to do right now. They're going to let him go because God commanded it. Even if we want to deny God, even if we want to disobey him, he is sovereign. It is his commands that are fulfilled. It's not, if he, he was not going to lose one of those that he was given, then no power of hell and no deed of man can ever snatch them from his hand. Even if the crowd wanted to disobey Jesus, right here, God gave them no freedom to. Now, remember that Peter has previously pledged not to abandon Jesus. I'll even die with you, he said, All right? So, I'll even die with you. I'm not that guy who's going to abandon you. Well, you're going to abandon me three times before the cock, cock, cock crows in the morning, you know? You're going to deny me three times. No, I'm not. That's not me, right? So, um, Peter's pride, you know, oh, gosh, Peter's pride had to be hurting when God told him, when Christ told him, no, man, you're going to deny me three times tonight. You're going to deny me. No, not me. Yes, you are. Oh, his pride had to be hurting. He had to have the desire to prove himself right. He had to prove himself right and Jesus wrong no matter what it cost him. But you know, it's not so easy to prove God wrong. Not so easy. So Peter takes the steps to die with Jesus. And Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Peter didn't have very good aim, but he cut, uh, Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? this is another get-behind-me-Satan moment for Peter, right? Peter, in his rashness and in his pride, decided he was going to do something for Jesus. But he did not take the time to assess the situation, to see what Jesus' will was, and to do what Jesus was calling him to do. Instead, he plowed ahead, taking matters into his own hands, almost creating a disaster. Now, people of God, can we do the same thing? Can we get impatient with God? Can we get ahead of God? Can we be rash in our pride and do something that proves our courage but may not be what God is calling us to do? You know, a lot of marriages are destroyed by a man rash in his pride, out to prove his manhood, when instead he should be humbly doing what God has called him to do and patiently love his wife, laying down his life or his reputation or his idea of manhood for her. A lot of marriages are destroyed by a wife, sure of the correctness of her opinion, insisting that her husband change and do what she tells him to, rather than patiently submitting to him and the Lord and waiting for God to change one or both of them into his likeness. We must always check ourselves. What is Jesus doing here? Am I outside his will and direction? You know, Luke records that Jesus took Malchus' ear and he reattached it, <laughs> completely healing him. Amazing. I'm still blown away by what happens next, that even after this obvious miracle that could only be done by the great I Am, they still arrest Jesus. 
and they still let Peter and the other disciples go. You'd think Peter would get arrested for assaulting the priest's servant or having an illegal sword or something. But no, nothing. Peter doesn't even get sued for this. You know? Jesus' command still holds, even after Peter puts it to the most intense test. I think there's something else for us. No matter how we try to, like Peter, make life all about us, it's really all about Jesus. It didn't matter to the souls of that crowd what happened to Peter. He was irrelevant to their eternal soul. Didn't matter who Peter was or what Peter did. What mattered was how they answered the question, who are you looking for? How did they respond to the I am? We so often try to make life about ourselves when it's really about Jesus. The only thing that really matters. So the crowd is not deterred by the bad actions of Peter or the gracious miracle of Christ. They continue to do what they came to do, which was to fulfill the prophecy of Jesus' betrayal, death, and resurrection. So verse 12, then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him, and they brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. I find it comical that they bound him. I mean, hadn't they just seen him blow them away with his words? <laughs> oh, hey, we better tie him up. Make sure you gag him. <laughs> you know? I don't know. Um, <clears throat> maybe they didn't want him to heal anybody else by touching them. You know, hey, he just stuck, he just healed Malchus by touching him. Make sure you tie him up so he can't do that again. Uh, you know, maybe they were concerned that Malchus' healing would start to create doubt they wanted to squelch. I don't want anybody to see him do that again. Maybe they were just following standard operating procedure, oblivious to the fact that this was no standard activity and no standard defendant. They were trying to bind God. How silly. Like Samson, he could have at any time broken the bonds that held him. Pastor Chuck Smith had a great saying regarding the binding of Jesus. He said, Jesus was not bound here by any man. He was bound by love. Love for the Father and love for you and me. Love that took him to the cross as the sacrifice for us. Bound by love. And we know he went willingly, bound by love, first to Annas and then to Caiaphas. And the music changes. Let's see if this works. So I have to credit my friend John Gross, who tells me he likes to imagine that Godfather music playing every time he hears the name Annas and Caiaphas. <clears throat> and it would be an appropriate soundtrack, because Annas was the head of what was really a mob family. You could, uh, Tony Soprano and, and uh, you know, they, they have no, nothing up on, on Annas. While it was a family of high priests, the real family business was controlling the temple sacrifice selling business and the temple money changing business. And this is how it worked. 
you might bring a perfectly good lamb for sacrifice, one that cost you, say, $50. And it sure looks good. It looks perfect, right? And you bring it. And then one of Annas's henchmen, he takes a look at it. One of his henchmen priests, he looks at it. He says, you know what? There's a little flaw in this lamb. This isn't good enough for the sacrifice. Look right there on its leg. That's not, it's not good enough. That just, you need to buy a new lamb a perfect lamb, right over here at the stall for $200. And now, you know, you've got this flaw. I don't know what you're going to do with this lamb. You surely aren't going to take him all the way back home, so I'll tell you what, I'll buy him from you for 10 bucks. So now you took your $50 lamb, you sold it for 10 bucks, and you bought a $200 lamb. And it wouldn't be a surprise if your $10 lamb now was somebody else's perfect sacrificial lamb for $200 later in the day. And it was just an extortion racket. And the threat wasn't to be beaten up, although that could occasionally happen, actually, or to be arrested, although that could happen too. It was worse. If you didn't offer the sacrifice, it's eternal damnation. They had the keys to hell. They told you that's where you were going if you didn't pay up. Then on a regular, you wanted to make your, your contribution to the temple, right? Well, you could only do that using temple coinage. And so you'd, why? Because the Roman coin had a picture of Caesar on it, which meant that and Caesar claimed to be a god, therefore he was an idol and could not cross the barrier into the temple. So in the temple courtyard, they'd set up the tables and they would exchange the money, right? And they would give you temple money in exchange for your gold Roman coin, and your temple money would be about 1% gold and... 80% nickel and whatever, right? It was clearly was not worth, the gold coin that you gave was not worth the temple coin that you had. But you had to give the temple tax anyway. So all of a sudden, the temple tax went way up, right? And they started, they, they were basically ripping the people off again, holding the keys to heaven and hell, or at least in the minds of the people. And Annas was the godfather himself. He had served at high, as high priest for nine years. And at that time, at this time, the high priest was no longer uh, selected by the priesthood in prayer. He was selected by the Roman government. And Annas had reportedly bribed his way to become the high priest. And, and his family had put a stranglehold on the office. From Annas's selection in 6 AD until the destruction of the temple in AD 70, so for that 64 years, it was either Annas, one of his five sons, or his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who served as the high priest. They had a stranglehold on it. They kept greasing the uh, palms of the Romans and, and keeping this business going. Annas also served as the head of the Sanhedrin. So he was not only the high priest, but he was the head of the government, too, the local government. His family exerted incredible power. And crossing them meant you were going to get the first century version of cement shoes. You, know, you, were, you were in some serious trouble. Well, Jesus had crossed them over and over and over again. Twice he had overturned the tables and cleared them from the temple, telling them they had taken a house of prayer and turned it into a den of thieves. He had called them empty sepulchers, a brood of vipers, and much worse. He had challenged their legitimacy at every turn, every opportunity, and now they would have their revenge. 
they would show their power. They would align all the power of the faith and the power of Rome against Jesus. They would destroy him, and they would do it in a way to make him a curse. They'd make sure he hung on a tree, and that would show him and everybody else not to mess with the family. It's amazing how these guys interwove their own interests with their religion. Caiaphas, earlier in the year, had conveniently prophesied that it was better for one man to die than for all the people to perish. Better for one man, their enemy, Jesus, to die than for all the people to perish. The idea was that Jesus was dangerous to the Jews. He would bring the Romans down on their head. It was mighty convenient, though, that the people that, <clears throat> that the people Jesus' death would protect was the mob family of Annas. He was one of the <clears throat> he was the one because Annas was the one the Romans would hold accountable for any violence or disturbance in Judea. But interestingly, even in his cynicism, the prophecy of Caiaphas was true. It was better for Jesus to die bearing the sins of the world than that all the world should perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now we shift our scene just a little bit. In the garden, Peter cut off the ear of Malchus the high priest, and then all the uh, Malchus uh, the, sir, the high priest servant, and then all of the disciples had fled. In fact, one fled, we know fled naked. Uh, we think that's probably John who's writing this story. Um, and <clears throat> but now Peter's back, and he's back with John, and and they the two of them had gotten the courage to overcome their fear. They'd, and they'd followed the soldiers to, where, to see where they were taking Jesus. And I think it's interesting that in most of John, Peter's referred to as Simon Peter. Simon Peter. A name he actually calls himself in 1 Peter. And I think Simon Peter's a reflection of the war of the flesh and the spirit within him. Simon is the name of his birth, reflecting his human nature. And Peter, the rock, is the name given to him by Jesus representing the man redeemed by Christ. Throughout the Gospels, Peter struggles with this identity as if he's trying to figure it out until the Passover when he see him totally step up into the Peter role. And here's one of those times, right, where he's in this struggle. Simon Peter has followed Jesus to Anna's house, the brave Peter, willing to follow the Lord into his death to draw a sword, and Simon, the man who ran away from the garden and still fears for his safety. Can we be like that sometimes, I, you know, double-minded? You know, a man or a woman of faith and a man or a woman of fear at the same time? Can we be God's man or woman who, <clears throat> who, falls on to, <clears throat> who falls into his or her own flesh in times of stress? Now, I know I can. It's a daily fight to put to death the old man and live in the spirit, to live as the redeemed man. Each of us has to put down our Simon and be our Peter. Verse 15, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus to the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. The thought here is that John may have been known to the high priest, 
through his father's work. Zebedee, his father, had a fleet of fishing boats and would have sold salted fish in Jerusalem, which was considered a delicacy. There, at least a few years ago, was a coffee shop in Jerusalem, which has some arches underneath it, which are supposedly the fish market of Zebedee. And it's highly likely that Zebedee regularly sold uh, and perhaps delivered fish in Jerusalem, and maybe John was his delivery boy. And the salted fish was a delicacy and would have been delivered to Annas, uh, the rich high priest and ruler. But in some way or other, John was known to the high priest. And uh, Peter's brave enough to go with John, but maybe not completely brave, right? So verse 17, aren't you one of this man's disciples too? Are you? She asked Peter. And he replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and the officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. And Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. And this won't be the last time Peter denies being a follower of Christ. You know, I'd like to say for me that boldness always wins over safety, over self-preservation. I'd like to say that. The question is, do I trust God enough to be unsafe with him? Do I count my personal safety and my self-protection as more important than my trust in and obedience to the Lord? You know, Simon Peter's name, Simon, actually comes from the Hebrew word to hear, which means to hear and obey. His name was to hear and obey. And if Simon couldn't live up to his own name in his own strength, how can I live up to the name, my new name, Christian, in my own strength? I have to be filled with the Holy Spirit every day just to be obedient and bold to avoid my self-preservation and trust Jesus that his plan is good, even if it involves danger to me, even if it involves danger to my image of myself or to my reputation that I want with others. Well, the story isn't all about Peter. The trial is set to begin. And I'm a lawyer, and I might view what happens next a little differently than some, because what happens next is the legal argument. If this was a court case, this is when the Counsel would approach the bench, and they would have their legal argument outside the hearing of the jury. Uh, This is what's going on. It's about the rules of court, and that's the argument that Jesus is going to engage in. Um, So there, Jesus isn't so much arguing the facts as he's pointing out to this religious court isn't even applying the religious law correctly. They are out to get him, but they're not doing it properly. And so we all know that in the United States, we have certain rights, and we all know the Fifth Amendment, right, which we don't have to testify against ourselves, right? <clears throat> and, and we can choose not to testify in any matter if it might incriminate us in some wrongdoing. Well, under Jewish law, there was like a Fifth Amendment on steroids, all right? This thing was, you could not bring a charge against someone without at least two witnesses, and you surely couldn't make a man testify against himself. But that doesn't stop Annas. So verse 19, meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus says in verse 20, I spoke openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret, so why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. So this is the legal argument, right? Ask two or three witnesses. There were witnesses. Ask them. You don't ask me. This is improper. This is not the way you do things. This is Jesus' legal argument, which is an appeal to Scripture. 
They were trying to put him to death for blasphemy, for making himself out to be God. But in order to do so, they had to follow the rules to set forth in Deuteronomy 17.2. And remember, these are supposedly the religious authorities who should be following the law. And Deuteronomy 17.2 requires that if a man or woman living among you in one of the towns that the Lord gives you is found doing evil in the eyes of your Lord, the Lord your God, in violation of his covenant, and contrary to my command, has worshiped other gods, bowing down to them or to the sun or the moon or the stars in the sky, or claiming to be God when he's not. This has been brought to your attention, then you must investigate it thoroughly. If it's true and it's been proved that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, take the man or woman who has done this evil deed to your city gate and stone that person to death. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death. They needed to be the ones, the witnesses were supposed to be the ones who nail them to the cross or throw the stones. And then the hands of all the people, you must purge the evil among you. Well, the penalty was going to be death, but Annas was violating the Scripture by not having at least two or three witnesses testify and, make, and trying to make Jesus a witness against himself. So Jesus says, verse 20, why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. And what the Jesus points out to Annas that he's not following the law, that this is not the way this is supposed to happen, Annas doesn't take it very well. So verse 22, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. I think this tells us a little bit about Annas and his own ego. Once the high priest, always the high priest. You know, didn't we already read that Caiaphas was the high priest, his son-in-law? But this guy slaps Jesus and says, is this the way you respond to the high priest? There were very strict rules, though, how the high priest was to be spoken to. But again, Annas is not the high priest. The rules were being perverted to allow Annas to maintain power and then they were used by him to try to exert a power he didn't rightfully have. And Jesus calls this out, effectively saying that I'm right about the law, you must have witnesses, and you are not the high priest, and this entire trial is illegal. That's the argument Jesus is making. So verse 23, Jesus responds to his being slapped and told he's talking badly to the high priest. He says, if I had said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Annas knows that Jesus is right. He knows it. That even though Annas is the mob boss, the power behind the priesthood, he needs to follow the proper forms in this matter. So he decides to send Jesus to the real high priest, his son-in-law Caiaphas, for a real trial. Verse 24, then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So our scene now shifts back to the fire. Simon Peter's still there, still brave enough and loyal enough to be close by, but still fearful enough to run when challenged. So verse 25, meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? And he denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? I think you'd remember the guy who cut your cousin's ear off, right? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. How devastating 
that rooster's crow must have been to Peter. I pray that I never hear it. Let me be all in, never denying, 100% living for Jesus, filled with the Spirit and bold. I'd like to always be that way, not just by the fire, but testifying in the trial. Not just watching the battle, but fighting it. Not staying close enough for comfort and warming myself in the glow of the faithful, but all in, fully engaged, fully on fire myself for the Lord and filled with the Holy Spirit fire. That's who I want to be. Simon Peter's spirit is crushed by this, by being less than the man that he promised to be. I will die for you, he said, and now he had three times denied Jesus. Simon Peter was not who he thought he was, and that was devastating. We know from Luke's account that he went out and he wept bitterly. But thankfully, Jesus is going to restore Peter. And Peter's going to go from warming himself by the fire to have a flaming tongue of fire dance on his head. He's going to go from denying Jesus to testifying before thousands as to the reality of the gospel. He's going to go from Simon Peter from Simon to Peter, totally transformed. And the next time we meet, we're going to make up, pick up the trials that heads to Caiaphas. We'll see the legal arguments and the passing the buck and the machinery of power all deployed to have God's plan implemented. But this week, I want to leave you with a couple of questions. First, who is it you want? Do you want the Jesus of your making Jesus of Nazareth? Or do you want the great I am? Do you want the Jesus who will do things for you? Or do you want the God who demands your worship, obedience, and love? Do you want a Jesus who will give you riches or reputation like Judas wanted? Or do you want the God who made himself of no reputation and offers treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy? Do you want the Jesus who you can do things for to show how great you are? Or do you want the God who will use you to fulfill his incredible plans and purposes? Who is it you want? You know, here is the place to find him. The Bible is the place to find him. Prayer is the place to find him. The prophet, the priest, the king, the one who has given up everything for you. He isn't hidden, he isn't far away, and he comes to everyone who calls on his name. Who is it that you want? And the second question for us tonight builds on the first. If we truly want the true Jesus, the great I am, are we really content to observe his works, to observe the trial? to bask in the warmth of the fire? Or are we ready to be all in? Where are you today? Are you testifying in the trial or are you warming yourself by the fire? Are you boldly following the God of the universe who loves you beyond all measure? Or are you afraid to trust him, afraid to go all in, afraid of what people will say? In DC Talk had a great song which asked, what will people do when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? 
What will people say if they find out it's true? I don't care when people say that I am a Jesus freak because there ain't no denying the truth. Is that you tonight? If not, why not? What are you afraid of? Is there any power of hell or fear of man that can ever pry you from his hand? We serve a great, great God. Father God, we just love you. We're amazed by you. She would descend from the glories of heaven to be born as a baby and then to go and be betrayed by all of us die on a cross for us. Lord, help us tonight to just be able to answer that question, who is it that you want? By saying we want the great I am, we want all of you, Jesus. We want to see your face. We want to see your glory. We want to um, know the real you, not the you that we create for ourselves. And then, Lord, help us to be just all in people testifying in the trial, fighting the battle, being all in where you want us to be. Listening, hearing your voice, seeing you work and be involved. Hmm. I thank you, Lord, that you can do mighty things through one person whose heart is wholly committed to you. Lord, we just look forward to what you're going to do through these people. We love you. We praise you. Hmm. You are an awesome God. In Jesus' name, amen.